All right, what is cooking, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Uh, this is going to be a little uh, discussion or synopsis of the book and the concept, The Principles of the Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. It's a really good book, really cool guy, really smart. Um, and I've listened to a bunch of his uh, stuff on YouTube, and also he has a s several books, uh, many research studies and things like that for you all to check out. Um, at the end of this podcast and in the description, I will put together some uh, information for you all to go and look on your own. So um, this is a very important concept, and I've strayed away from doing a podcast on it for a little while uh, just because I wanted to have a better understanding of the things that were going on in order to actually take, uh, tackle this this task of, of uh, giving a comprehensive view of what's going on, or just at least a look at it. So um, this book right here describes the rise and the fall of empires over time, uh, why empires fall, how they succeed, uh, how they don't succeed, uh, and what trends occur uh, during these lifetimes. And what are the uh, cause and effect relationships between um, something happening, X happening, and then Y happening, leading to a decline in an empire? Um, and he makes a cool claim in this book that typically empires um, over time through the studying of history last anywhere from 250 years to plus or minus 150 years on that 250. So, it, you know, you, typically they're going to be around 250 years long. Um, and he is pinning the discussion a lot on a global view, uh, but you can definitely tell there's an undertone um, of uh, foreboding for people who live in America. And um, I think it's a good thing to take these things into account and not be naive so that when these things happen, inevitably they're going to happen. The world order is going to completely change because it, historically it has been proven to. But uh, anyways, not meant to scare anybody here. Um, I had to stop the podcast because I started laughing. <laughs> Uh, maybe I can just keep that in the podcast. I don't know. Uh, but the New World Order kind of raises uh, hairs up on your uh, your arm a little bit. And it's, it's a term that's been passed around for a little while um, amongst the elites. And I don't know if you kind of stay in, in tune with this kind of stuff, but it just seems like every single big meeting that happens around the globe, uh, these big financial meetings, these big global planning meetings and uh, environmental meetings, they all have uh, spoken of and mentioned the New World Order. The NWO is pretty pretty freaky and crazy because it's kind of suggesting that um, everything's going to change. Everything is, um, and you know the the slogan for this uh, NGO uh, or New World Order uh, is "You will own nothing and you will be happy." You will own absolutely nothing, guys. You will you will not have a car, not have a house, but we will somehow manage to make you happy because we know what you need to be happy. What the I mean, come on, guys. You, you gotta, you can't buy this stuff, right? Um, and this whole uh, podcast, book, whatever series that I'm gonna be doing here is just calling, calling out this stuff and um, trying to bring awareness to it because um, there, there is a sense of uh, kind of um, like a storm cloud is gathering over our heads a little bit if you're into this kind of thing. Um, but anything can happen with numbers. I'm, I'm telling you guys, like uh, if enough people are able to come together. Uh, anything can happen. And anybody who says against that, just uh, just forget them, all right? Uh, because when people come together, they can make shit happen. Um, anyways, uh, we can go more back into the book, but um, I just started going into the, uh, the uh, New World Order and all this crazy stuff that's like about to happen. But um, if you guys don't really know too much about it, then just look it up on YouTube and uh, look up Klaus Schmidt. Uh, just look this guy up. S-C-H-M-I-D-T, <clears throat> uh, I believe. Claude uh, is his first name, this kind of like Santa Claus, but with a K. Um, 
and uh, you know this this guy was born in uh, Germany, I believe. Uh, I think he went he went through schooling, and then um, somehow he got. Inf- I don't really know too much about the guy, so don't quote me. But somehow he got into this position where um, he started bringing together a bunch of influential people, which then turned into the leaders of nations, which then turned into like the leaders of of like you know the UN um, and all of these massive conglomerates and corporations. And and he's having all these people at a national summit <clears throat> every single year. And they're discussing the new world order, the future of things, and uh, how they want to lay it out. Um, and you would think, yeah, that that's a typical thing that occurs, right? Um, but we've never really seen in the past, at least in human history, um, the vast majority of the nations of the world coming together and kind of formulating a common vision. Now, it sounds good. It sounds utopian. Um, but there's a lot of special interest that is tied up into the high levels of politics. We all know this. Um, and inevitably it's going to favor the people who are in the prevailing order or want to switch to their, their kind of order. Um, and we will have little say in how that goes because when you combine all of the world together in one government, it's very powerful. And uh, that's something that I think I want to avoid. I like my individual personal freedoms, and I, I do like owning stuff, right? I don't want to own everything, but a car's nice. I like getting from point A to point B. Um, I don't want to be ferried around by an autonomous vehicle all the time either, right? Sometimes I want to be behind the wheel and, and moving around. You know, I think that's just um, going back, you know, to another thing I was looking at with uh, this, this, you know, enlightenment and, and the uh, the look into happiness and what happiness and all is and all that. <clears throat> there's a prerequisite. There's three prerequisites for happiness um, in this book that were laid out uh, during the enlightenment, and one of those is domestic affection. The second is material sufficiency, and the third is a suitable degree of freedom. None of those things, except for probably uh, domestic affection, will occur if we own nothing and we won't be happy because it doesn't make sense. You, you have these prerequisites that make people happy globally, right? Um, and it's a certain suitable degree of freedom I think is very important for that. Um, so I don't know. What do y'all think? Do you think it's a good thing to have a one world government or one world order? You know, at least uh, a existing, um, like a UN that's a lot stronger or whatever. Like, would that be a good thing or that be a bad thing? I don't know. Please enlighten me. Um, I think it's bad. So if anybody else wants to hop on or, or comment or something like that, please do because <laughs> change my mind. Um, so anyways, let's get back into a few quotes in the book. I, I don't I hope I didn't already go over this. I kind of forgot what I already did, but um, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some some quotes, some really cool stuff in this book. Um, he talks about kind of how you know you can look at trends happening in countries and see if they are going to fail. And one of these things is education. Uh, that's a prerequisite because you got to raise up a uh, populace that can then be productive, that can then trade with other countries and can make you a strong power or and then in that case everybody else becomes uh more successful in most cases unless you're in a dictatorship um but th- that's that's really important and i think our education is kind of in dire straits right now um and i hate to say it but also there's a really cool thing to think about how uh a lot of people uh the statistics are showing that a lot of people are taking their kids out of public school and private schooling them now is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? People can have di- different varying opinions. Um, but really, the traditional educational system that was built, I think, was imported over from Prussia, right? This military power. Um, 
uh, I think Frederick the Great, um, you know, it was during that time, and we kind of copied that system. And some of the Prussian um, oligarchs were actually the founding uh, kind of vision, the uh, idols of the uh, founding fathers of our educational system. Um, and so it was really meant at the time to serve a good purpose, and it did, um, because you had to raise kids at that time to become very disciplined, very uh, productively oriented, like in, in an industrial sense. Um, and so our education system hasn't really changed much since then. It's heavily industrialized. We're kind of pumping kids through without giving too much uh, you know, not looking too much at the individual differences in kids uh, and instead kind of fitting a glove onto everybody. So uh, there's up, ups and downs to both sides of these arguments, and I would love to hear y'all's uh, take on this. But I can definitely see how the decline of education is definitely occurring in America right now. Um, and he also gives a few more. So uh, let me, if I don't find this in the next five seconds, I'm going to stop the podcast and turn it back on when I do. So five seconds. Okay, so it definitely was more than five seconds. Um, but the second thing was the level of productivity. And I said earlier that uh, the education leads into that because you have to bring up the kids to be able to produce things. Um, and uh, I don't know, y'all can make your own mind up about this, but every time I drive down the road, I can't get uh, to fast food. Not that I need fast food all the time. I mean, I, I like it every once in a while, but um, a lot of the restaurants are closed. A lot of the shops are closed. Uh, businesses have shut down and things like that. And I wonder if that's, out of a lack of um, ability to keep the store open, or um, it definitely has something to do with the employment, uh, filling in the positions and things like that. Uh, but what if some people make more money off of the government handouts than they do um, actually working, which is plausible in some cases. So um, it, our productivity has definitely decreased. And, and that's not just restricted to McDonald's, right? Um, but somebody can counteract me on this. I think that uh, our, our productivity today is is still good uh, generally but um, it can see I can see the future uh, turning out to be like the productivity drastically reduces because of our current education um, and things like that so all right the third thing was their levels of trade with other countries so um, that's another good way to, to look at the rises and the cycles of empires and things like that um, if you're trading a lot with other countries, uh, that's probably a sign that uh, you are well, obviously well connected within the world, the global politic uh, system, um, and that you have pr produced enough to be able to facilitate those transactions over long stretches of distance. Um, and then we have the militaries. Okay, so America's got that one covered. <laughs> no need to expand on that. We got that covered. We got a lot of got a lot of big guns. Um, Got a lot of nukes, a lot of guns, a lot of submarines. I mean, it's it's cool. Um, it's really cool, honestly. I think some of our military technology is dope. I don't know if anybody saw that new bomber they released, but it was like the first bomber in a long time. I don't know how long, but um, they haven't released a, a bomber like that. So um, it was a B something, B twenty one. I don't know. Um, somebody look it up. <clears throat> but uh, okay, so the fourth thing. Their currencies and other markets. Okay, now that's what this book is really kind of talking about. The currencies and the other markets. Um, and this is going to require a stretch because we're in a precarious, on the rocks, between a rock and a hard place situation in America right now with our fiscal policy. It's crazy. I mean, how much is our debt, right? It's like $31 trillion or something like that. It's, um, I mean, you can't count it with, with every object in the world. <laughs> There's not enough blades of grass to, <laughs> to count up to $31 trillion. Um, It's huge. And uh, thankfully, last year, our deficit was reduced by 
thankfully. But we're still losing money by the billions every single year. How long can we keep this up? I don't think too long, especially for printing a lot of money and devaluating the overall like structure of the dollar and the trust in that dollar. Um, so um, there is several – I think uh, Russia and China – just came together and they were talking about going back to the gold system. That's a very interesting concept. Don't want to divulge too much on that, but um, that would be a big threat because currently we have, as being the United States, uh, the global reserve currency, and that is traded and exchanged and stored all across the globe. But what happens when other countries start banking with the yuan or with the uh, ruble, right? It's going to be a lot different and um, our position in the world is going to be severely impacted. Um, so, you know, when we're looking at these things, I think it's important to consider that, uh, the future is not going to be a lot like the past. It might be different. It might be better. It might be worse. It might be anything that we can possibly conceive. Uh, but we're not going to be in the position of having the global reserve currency for, for too much longer. I don't think personally, um, because, you know, there's, there's definitely other systems out there that are garnering a lot of trust, a lot of support, a lot of allegiance with other countries like China, um, you know, with Indonesia, with Africa, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it's, it's very impressive, in my opinion, what, what, they're, what they're doing. But also behind the scenes, it seems like they are meddling a lot in other people's affairs. And, um, you know, they are doing things in a way that is very long vision oriented. It's very far in the future. It's, I think it's called Wu Wei. It's a concept. Uh, it's like take the roundabout and not the straight way forward. And that's exactly what they're doing with a lot of their strategies. They're taking the long route and, and hedging a bets now so that it'll pay off like 15 to 20 years in the future. That's what they've done in Nigeria, especially with building up a lot of the infrastructure there. Um, you know, in Nigeria, they're building a new capital. Um, they have seen a massive uptake in just uh, public projects and things like that. And if you look at the source of, you know, where that money came from, it's always from China. And, and they're, they're doing like massive loans and financing about 90% of some of these projects. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these are multi-billion, maybe even sometimes trillion dollar loans, I, probably just, a, you know, billion. Uh, but uh, that's happening all across the globe. And some of these countries inevitably are not going to be able to pay that off. And so what happens then? Uh, who's, how are they indebted to China in that case? And um, I think it comes down, I can look more into it. Somebody can check me, but I think it comes down to like special lease rights uh, and access to other things in the country. I don't know if it's minerals or whatever, but I know the special lease rights has been a thing. Um, so uh, that is kind of what we're looking at with the expansion of China, right? And um, it, it seems like, a multipolar world uh, can go several ways, but uh, I see the polarity slightly shifting towards China's side by 2050. I mean, um, and it's 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 crazy to think about, and it's merely objective what I'm talking about here. I know there's going to be a lot of people be like, "America will never die. We'll never die. We'll fight hard to the end," and of course we will. Of course we'll fight, but there are things that are going to occur right? That we've never seen before. And we're going to have to adapt outside of our current understanding of of the way things go on today and the way things have gone on in the past in America tr traditionally. Um, and so it, it's, it's going to be more of an adapt, uh, being adaptive than being resistive or forceful, being adaptive, because this, these things are going to be inevitable. And when I say these things, I'm kind of talking about the underlying um, essence of the, the shift in uh, global order, right? And especially when the reserve currency switches, I think we'll see some serious uh, flip-flop in the way things are today. Um, 
and also culture. Culture is changing significantly, right? Um, and there's a cool quote in this book, actually. Um, I don't know if I already said it. I might have. Um, I might have. So don't get mad if, I, if I'm reiterating myself because I forgot. Uh, but it says, uh, yeah, as I studied history, I saw that it typically transpires via relatively well-defined life cycles, like that of organisms that evolve as each generation transitions to the next. Okay, so that is... Um, a cool quote because it, it talks about how society changes over time, um, like an organism, right? When you have kids, for example, your kids are going to turn out slightly different than you, maybe very different than you, um, but they'll still probably maintain some attributes. I don't know, maybe not in some cases, but they will always be different, not completely completely the same. Um, and we, when we go back and we look at his concept of the, the total human history and the experience of humanity over time is the aggregate of all of the individual stories of individual humans. Um, and individual humans change over time, so the overall course of history is going to uh, change over time too, right? And um, there's no stopping that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an evolutionary change in the kind of model of society. It's really cool to think about how evolution happens in a society, like like it's crazy, societal evolution comes down to like culture change, economic change, military prowess, military domination, exploration, new discoveries that like create an enlightenment or a boom in uh, thought, it's like the enlightenment, um, like the Protestant movement, you know, all of these things um, are kind of the flourishing capacity of the aggregate of human experience, which is really cool, really dope to study. So, um, what happens, like I said, once this thing shifts into a new world order and, and maybe China's at the head of it or this, uh, this uh, World Economic Forum is at the head of it. And uh, I, I, you know, I know that some of the, the leaders in the WEF kind of emulate the way China's doing things. I have a good friend who can describe an unbiased version of the Chinese political system very, very well. And you'll probably be surprised. Um, but the uh, it seems like people like Justin Trudeau, who I really don't like, and I don't mind saying it, he's just a, a, an annoying freaking, I, he shouldn't even be there. He's just, I, I'm not going to get into that. But uh, Justin Trudeau kind of emulates, he wants to emulate the Chinese method uh, in a lot of ways. And so does Klaus Schmidt. Klaus Schmidt said it too. And he's the, the leader of this uh, World Economic Forum. Uh, that we talked about earlier with all these countries coming together under a common vision or whatever, just looking towards the 2030 plan. Um, so there was this event 201 that occurred a long time ago. Um, maybe not a lot. I think it was like 2016 or something. I don't know. Um, I need to go back and read it again, but it's a, uh, well, no, watch it again. And then there's a subsequent, you know, there's an attached document or whatever that's kind of a parallel to it. And uh, I forgot the name of it, but um, yeah, this, this, uh, Event 201 was kind of when all these leaders came together and they created a few scenarios for how the future is going to pan out and how things are going to look. And that's where they got that idea of, yeah, you will own nothing and you will be happy because top-down authority is better. And we decided it. So you should listen. You should listen, all right? But but you can't speak about it. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave your ears, but we'll, we'll take your mouth. Okay, so... Back to the book, uh, The Principles of the Changing World Order, Ray Dalio on page three has a cool quote, goes, all the empires and dynasties I studied rose and declined in a classic big cycle that has clear markers that allow us to see where we are in it. 
The big cycle produces swings between one, peaceful and prosperous periods of great creativity and productivity that raise living standards a lot, and two, depression, revolution, and war periods when there is a lot of fighting over wealth and power and a lot of destruction of wealth, life, and other things we cherish, end quote. Okay, so, um, you know, I don't think we're in a peaceful and prosperous time in America right now. It seems to me like there's extremes, extreme amount of polarity um, between people, between policy groups, uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, between believers and non-believers, between everybody, really, um, between dogs and their owners, between dogs and other dogs. I mean, it's even infected the dogs, guys. But we're very polar, uh, so this one kind of kind of talks about it, um, this, this concept of the big cycle, right? That's, uh, and, and another thing that I wanted to talk about, it says, um, quote, I saw that the peaceful creative periods lasted much longer than the depression, revolution, and war periods, uh, typically by a ratio of five to one. So one could say that the depression, revolution, war periods were transition periods between normally peaceful and creative periods. All right, so we're going to war. I mean, whether you want to say we're in war or not, guys, we give a lot of money to Ukraine and we have like people flying over there to go participate in this war. We are at war right now, whether it's a cold war, whether it's a physical war, whatever it is, there's a lot of things happening. And mysteriously, there was two months ago or a month and a half ago, both of the Nord Stream pipelines were blown up in three different locations. So that doesn't happen naturally. Um, they can't find who did it, but there is speculation that it was America. And if that turns out to be America, we just committed an act of war against Russia. Yeah, let that sink in. That's big. Um, but so we're definitely going into a period of, of, of this disaster, right? And it's, um, it's, it's something that happens in the lifetime of this big cycle. And several big cycles can occur during a nation's lifetime. Um, but it seems like we've already gone through several of those big cycles. And uh, when we go back and we look at the overall length of empires, I know we haven't been an empire at, in the strict sense for 250 years, um, but we've been an empire powerful one for a good long time. And time is speeding up, guys. I mean, time is going quicker and quicker and quicker. I mean, things are exponentially increasing in technology and the speed of information transfer. It's almost like um, seconds were longer 500 years ago or something. Um, things are happening really quick. So this idea of the, the 250 year long uh, span idea, that's that's been uh, actually, that, that is a number that's been derived from all of the study of the past empires and dynasties that have occurred. And it happens to be right there, that number, um, but it could be much less. So we don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the the whole division thing is is intense, uh, and you can feel it like between people when you're just observing, um, and you could feel this tension. Uh, I like friendly discourse and dialogue. Um, I have a mix of views about things, but I definitely swing right. I'm definitely more conservative than I am on the left. But it doesn't mean that I can't listen to somebody on the left when when they are talking to me. I take in what they're saying and I try to see where they are coming from, um, instead of trying to think about my answer that's going to refute that, I'm thinking about, okay, how can I ask them more questions to better understand their point of view? If it turns out to be ludicrous, then yeah, I can't, I can't help myself but go against it. But if it has, if it comes from a genuine place and it actually has a little bit of liberal liberality to it, it's, it's all, it's 
a good thing because you know we're a liberal nation. If you know the, the word liberal has been construed, uh, but liberal is very analogous with with freedom, right? So um, personal freedom and expression, um, the liberal arts, right? So <clears throat> it's it's uh, definitely been a construed word. Uh, so you can, you can definitely listen to both sides. Uh, anyways. So he also says, uh, while the peaceful creative periods are certainly more enjoyable for most people, all these realities have their purposes for advancing evolution in, in the uh, societal sense. Um, so in the broader sense, they are neither good nor bad. The Depression Revolution War periods produce a lot of destruction, but like cleansing storms, they also get rid of weaknesses and excesses, which seem to be debt, too much debt, and produce a new beginning in the form of a return to fundamentals on a sounder footing, albeit painfully. So this idea of a, of a new beginning has been a concept for a very, very long time, not just in you know, economics and politics and things like that, but in, in religion. Um, so the, this, this idea of renewal uh, can be a good thing and also be something that, if led in the wrong direction, can really produce bad fruit. So um, how would we reconstruct a fallen American empire? It's a question that you have to consider because if you don't consider it, then you will not be able to prepare for it. If I think you should prepare for the inevitable, right? Uh, and not, not the inevitable, pr prepare for the uh, unexpected, that the things that uh, you aren't expecting to happen, you have to plan around those things and plan a way to navigate those waters because it will be much different. Um, and it's better to have a plan than not to have a plan. So that's kind of why I'm bringing a lot of emphasis to this collapse, so to speak, of the American empire. What would that look like? Um, and how would we change? Uh, would we become more reserved? Would we bring everything back home and focus on ourselves? Who knows? That might be a great thing. You know, what about if we were to take um, a lot of the money that's going overseas right now with all of these different projects and relationships and then bring that money back to the American a homeland, uh, and then develop in America, what would that look like, right? Um, we would see massive, massive growth. Um, and that doesn't mean neglect foreign relationships at all, but to give more emphasis on America first, right? Because I think that's very important, and that's every country's goal. Um, the goal of a country is just the aggregate of the goals of all the individual people that make up the populace, and we all want success and happiness, and we all want to be, uh, you know... The, it, it varies, but we all want to have a little bit of safety, security. So nobody's refuting that, unless you're an anarchist, that there should be a military, right? You should have, be able to, you should be able to defend yourself. You know what I mean? Um, it's kind of like being out in the street. And for me, I feel thankful that I know martial arts because I can use that thing. I can use it on somebody if they attack me. I'm never going to use it, but if they use it on me, I can defend myself. Same thing goes with, with countries. It's just scaled up, right? You want to have some source of protection. I think it's very important. Also, if you have renegade powers, really big powers like uh, extreme, extreme dictatorships that rise up somewhere in the globe, you need somebody strong to counteract that uh, because you have to have that, that presence. Okay, before we close out for today, there's one more concept that I want to cover. It's on uh, page nine of Principles of Changing World Order. It says, uh, studying money and credit cycles throughout history made me aware of the long-term debt and capital market cycle, which typically lasts about 50 to 100 years which has led me to view what is happening now in a very different way than if I hadn't gained that experience. For example, interest rates hit 0% and central banks printed money and bought financial assets in response to the 2008 financial crisis. I had studied that happening in the 1930s, which helped me to see how and why 
central bank actions of creating a lot of money and a lot of credit and debt 90 years ago pushed financial asset prices up, which widened the wealth gap and led to an era of populism and conflict. Okay, so we can unwrap this. Uh, first, the financial asset is pretty much a liquid, non-tangible asset. It's a bond or a stock, right? It's you buy stock in a company. That is a financial asset. So when the uh, interest rates hit rock bottom at 0%, um, the banks weren't making any money. And the central bank had to print money into circulation to bail them out from failing. Um, and also, the central bank bought a lot of these financial assets, um, and that raised the price of these financial assets, made them more scarce, um, and uh, people couldn't buy them as often or as uh, easily as they did in the past. Uh, we're talking about just regular people. And those uh, financial assets became very uh, coordinated and kind of consolidated um, in the powers at B at that day, right? And that wealth gap has steadily increased from that point, which was 90 years ago. Um, so, and, and we can see this playing out today, right? With the interest rates a little while ago, they're higher now, um, but the interest rates a little while ago were really low. And at some point we actually reached a negative interest rate, believe it or not. I think it was in 2000, uh, 2016 or 17, um, we had a negative interest rate. What? I mean, that's like, it's, it's only happened in a few locations. I think Denmark tried it out. But the, uh, the negative interest thing is pretty tricky. So from what I know about it, you have to pay the bank to keep your money in the bank. So it's you pay a toll fee or like a storage fee for you having your money in Wells Fargo, right? Um, but on the flip side, the uh, lender is going to pay you to take out a loan. So if I want to go buy a car or buy a nice helmet, right, I'm going to take out a loan for 100 bucks, and they're going to pay me money to take out that loan. So I actually profit from taking out a loan. And so I guess it's supposed to encourage more risky behavior and less money in the bank. It's supposed to out, uh, be an uptake and a way to spur on um, economic activity and investment. But the thing about it is there's no fail safe. The fail safe for any economic decrease today is when we lower interest rates, we can increase economic uh, activity because more people are likely to take out a loan at a lower interest rate than a higher interest rate. And that's traditionally been a fail-safe for a, a, a economy in decline. But there is no way to fail-safe a negative interest economy. How do you do that? So I think it's kind of whack, um, just to say <laughs> whack. Okay, let's skip up to another concept. Uh, it says on page 11, my most recent study on which this book is based came about because of my need to understand three big forces. That, have, that hadn't happened before in my lifetime and the questions they prompt. Okay, number one, the long-term debt and capital market cycle. At no point in our lifetimes have interest rates been so low or negative on so much debt as they are of this writing. The value of money and debt assets is being called into question by the supply and demand picture for them. In 2021, more than $16 trillion of debt was at negative interest rates and unusually large amounts of additional new debt will soon need to be sold to finance deficits. Am I the only one who thinks this is absolutely ludicrous? I mean, we're taking on more debt to finance a deficit, to pay off what we're losing. I mean, we're, we're, we're like to reduce what we're losing. It's crazy. I mean, we, we lost, what, 81 billion last year. Oh, but wait, guys, 
there's better better news. Um, it was 42% less than the year before. Yeah. Spectacular, spectacular. Um, as long as we, you know, we, we make sure that we're not losing more than $100 billion a year, I, I think that uh, that's a very a good American policy. <clears throat> um, so yeah, how are we going to keep, how is the American government going to keep their obligations, healthcare obligations, pensions, Social Security? You know, what's going to happen when they have this wave of boomers coming in and knocking at their door being like, yo, where's my money? Where are my dollar bills? Give me a couple Benjamins. That's what it's going to be like. And no, and we, I don't know how we're going to accommodate that. But I don't know. I'm not the reserve. I'm not the Fed. <clears throat> so I think I'm running out of mental energy on this one. Uh, been going for a little bit just off the top. Um, so we'll make this section one. Uh, I'll come back and I'll do some more. Um, these, these are fun. I like doing these. So I hope you guys liked them. Uh, this is just a spinoff of Inspiration Podcast. Uh, I'll probably just, you know, as I like books and really, really want to communicate the concept, I just start a podcast about it. So I think that's kind of the whole concept of this this series that I'm going to make. But uh, anyways, I'll see y'all on the next podcast. Until then, stay intrigued and see you later.